This is an ABC podcast. Edwina Farley with you for a country breakfast. If your town or city had a huge natural disaster, would you want to take the reins and lead the recovery? Mallacoota is a, a really strong community with very intelligent people with really good ideas, which are not always compatible. So there have been times in the past where the community has been split and wanted to go in different directions. It's a huge task, but one that East Gippsland town, Mallacoota, is pulling out all stops to make work. We'll visit that community this morning. Big stories in rural news this week. Let's catch up with Serena Locke. Good morning. Good morning, Edwina. Now, with restrictions on border movement, what's in store for people who travel for grain harvest time? Well, it's a really good question because of this coronavirus cluster in Melbourne, it's caused borders to be shut. And just as New South Wales and Queensland are preparing for a big harvest. Now, Victorians or anyone who have been to the Melbourne hotspots have to go into two weeks of self-isolation. But Grain Producers Australia, the organisation, says it has received assurances that workers will be exempt from that. Andrew Wiedemann in Victoria, head of Grain Producers Australia, says farmers and harvest workers can apply online by developing a COVID plan which will uh, then bring them in line with the transport operators, uh, the same process. Now, we feel that that will help. And look, and hopefully, fingers crossed, that a lot of the current pressure we're seeing will have been resolved by the time that harvest comes around. But I think we've got to be well prepared. Uh, we can't wait on, on the hope. We've just got to put everything in place that we can at the moment to try and make sure that we're ready uh, for what's looking like a pretty big East Coast crop. One of Victoria's largest abattoirs has been ordered to close after workers tested positive to coronavirus. It's reignited concerns and possibly over-egged them about potential meat shortages in supermarkets. What can you tell us about this? So the case has been reported to the Victorian Department of Health. Uh, there are cases linked to JBS Abattoir in Brooklyn and then another cluster to Somerville Retail Services in Tottenham in Victoria. And that abattoir is a supplier of beef, lamb and pork under the Coles brand. Uh, they've been closed for cleaning and staff were being tested. But Robert Constable, the, the chair of the Australian Meat Industry Council, says we needn't uh, panic buy meat because there is plenty of supply. And he says that last time butchers more than supermarkets increased their supply very quickly to respond to that demand. We were seeing sort of 400% increases on sales turnover. The large supermarket chains were sort of seeing around um, only 40% increase and that was due to them not being able to be agile and actually keep meat on the shelves. And Somerville Retail Services uh, declined to speak to us, but we did reach out to them and Pacific Meats for comments. Of course, we do depend on overseas markets, no more so than in the wool industry, where almost all the wool is sold overseas. 
that's taken a real hit in confidence. Yeah, I haven't been dress shopping since February and overseas it's just the same. People really aren't shopping. Over 75% of Australian wool goes to China for processing and wool exports overall were down 17% on the same time last year. The biggest drop of that was to Italy. A number of US retailers have filed for bankruptcy. Uh, they include J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Stage Stores and J.C. Penny, just to name a few. Now, Michelle Wool of Adelaide, the CEO, Stephen Reid, says the lockdown has changed the retail scene. Our customers that make mainly suitings for menswear, uh, particularly in Italy, are reporting for sales of men's fabric is actually down 60% year on year. Uh, and that, that uh, if you think about it clearly, it's probably not that surprising. Uh, I certainly haven't worn a suit myself since February. Uh, there's very few meetings, there's no travel, uh, there's no big social events. On the flip side, though, sales of uh, wool into both knitwear and primarily into the, the sports high performance and sports leisure wear seems to be going gangbusters. Yes, because we're all sitting around on our couches in our leisure wear. Now, um, this story is a, a really interesting one. Personally, I think it's an essential food group, but cheesemakers want a review of the Health Star rating instead of marking cheese lower than junk food. Yeah, it's, look, it is extraordinary. I mean, there's reasons for it, but the state and federal ministers are looking at the health star ratings of all food at the moment. Dairy processors say ratings for cheese should be about more about the other nutrients, not just the fat and the sodium content. Janine Waller is executive director of the Australian Dairy Products Federation. But at the moment, we've got over 50% of cheeses sitting less than three stars, and we would just like to see a proportion of that go up. So this is your everyday cheddar cheeses that are scoring one, one and a half stars. Uh, it just doesn't seem right um, when you've got other junk or treat foods that are scoring a similar rating. There have been warnings about insurance premiums going through the roof for a while now because of climate change and farmers aren't immune to that. But insurance for them is already really expensive. Yes, and ABARES has estimated that climate change has already cost farmers about a billion dollars in the past 20 years. This is the government's commodities analysts, economists, and they say the impact of natural disasters like droughts, flood, hail and bushfires have caused the insurance premiums to rise to the point where farmers are even opting out. And the Insurance Council of Australia's Campbell Fuller says overall about 80% of Australian households are underinsured. And that's even greater among farmers because they're taking on more of their own risk. It is about making sure that the structures that we allow to be built in these areas are resilient to known risks and that any changes in risk that can be predicted through climate change modelling are also taken into account. What the industry is really focusing on is how to make sure that Australia can continue to have an affordable and accessible insurance industry in a climate change economy. And while Australia's economy generally is being hit very hard by the pandemic, some sectors are actually thriving, like machinery sales. Yes, I like to think that there's a little ray of sunshine somewhere. Because of the combination of rain, food security concerns and the federal government's instant asset write-off, tractor and farm machinery sales are booming. And the figures for June show 2,000 tractors were sold a massive 48% increase on the same time last year. Now, Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia Executive Director Gary Northover says the industry is staging a recovery since the drought. 
At the start of the year, it was very grim. Lots, lots of stock. Uh, the impact of the drought was still very prevalent. Bushfires. Then we got some really strong rains and uh, uh, introduction of the government's instant asset write-off uh, back in March. Really stimulated uh, the industry, and uh, so much so that the last four months have been fantastic. And uh, nationwide, we recorded our best month in June since 1981 for machinery sales. So uh, it's made a great comeback. Oh, so nice to end on a positive. Serena, thank you. Thank you, Edwina. Serena Locke there, and that's a wrap for this week's Rural News. Is global warming a violation of your human rights? My job as president is to protect law-abiding citizens. In a country where journalists are jailed and drug users executed... It is sinister and extremely dangerous. This typhoon survivor demands to be heard. When you witness dead people in the streets, that changes you. Science Friction's Climate in the Courtroom, Sunday at 5 on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. week we're making a splash with a pair of brave cold water swimmers. They're taking a dip in their local reservoir in the depths of winter in central Victoria and finding the exercise and freezing cold water is having a positive benefit for their physical and mental health. We'll discover how a regional storytelling workshop is helping participants deal with past trauma and we'll meet the citizen scientists keeping an eye on the seas to help monitor whale numbers in the southern ocean. Now, I just love these whales, and it's free, and it's out here in the wilds on the you know the great southern ocean. And I'm I've been out on this deck where it's pure white with hail, and I'm the only one here. And the whales are just sitting out there breaching, and I'm getting 10, 15 massive breaches and double breaches, and you know, and every time I know you can't get sick of that stuff. Having a whale of a time, keeping a watch on those majestic marine mammals, that story coming up. First today, though, we'll head to the Murray River, where historic paddle steamers are gearing up to take tourists cruising once again after the coronavirus pandemic saw boats docked for their longest break in history. At this wide stretch of the Murray River in South Australia, the paddle steamers' horns have been very quiet until now. Coronavirus had shut down tourism and the more than a century old paddle vessels were docked for possibly the longest time in their history. Now the captains are firing the engines up again and signalling tours are resuming in Manham in South Australia and Mildura in Victoria. I'm Laura Collins and here on the banks of the Murray at Mildura, deckhands have had extra time to scrub the decks and polish the brass on these majestic old vessels. For Mildura Paddle Steamers marketing manager, Ashton Cruiser, it's a relief to be moving again. Uh, so the COVID-19 means we haven't been able to operate, which is the first time in the longest time that these boats have not operated. Um, we cruised all through the World Wars, all through the Spanish flu, um, floods, droughts, we've still been operating, but the COVID-19 or coronavirus has actually meant that we've had to stop our operations. Tourists will have to continue their social distancing on board the Murray River Cruise. Mildura Paddle Steamer's captain, Angus McCullough, says the halt to operations was devastating. He only started steering the historic vessels a year ago. Earlier on, um, my, well, my old man, Dad, um, he 
when he was about my age, 17, 18, he was um, working on a boat known as the Winera and also the Coonawarra, which is at Mildura here. And he was just a deckhand and a bit of an engineer um, doing weekend, weekend runs from Mildura to Wentworth. Um, my great aunties also worked on those two boats. So, yeah, they were, they were as a, uh, like, chefs or cleaners, you know, general deckhand, um, stuff like that. So, yeah, and it's sort of... Um, I've grown up with stories from, you know, from Dad and, you know, my great aunties from that sort of stuff. And I don't know, it's growing up on the river as well. Um, it's, there's just something about it that seems to stick. So it really all started, I think I was about 11, when I when it really started to kick in and go, oh, rightio, you know, I might be able to do something with myself with these old boats. Downstream at Manham in South Australia, visitors will get to see an abundance of birds. At the Manham Dock Museum, there are more than 100 volunteers who work on the PW Mayflower and the PS industry. Chair Rob Bowering says they're excited to see the guests getting back on board. We like to show them what it was like, get them interested. The odd times we'll pick up a new volunteer, or and we like some younger ones, but um, to, to put this marine uh, out on the water, it takes a lot more than just a crew. Um, you know, we, we have to get the wood for it and we have to load it, we have to cut it, we have to prepare the boat. And there's so many more people involved than actual crew, but, uh, and they enjoy it too, to see it going out. And uh, I don't know what, where their passion comes from, but I know where mine comes from, but it does. Volunteer Wally Meekins helps restore the boats because he says they're irreplaceable. Well, number one is the, the priority is the boats and the history. But number two, and it's very significant, is the camaraderie. You know, we, we have a great bunch of people. There's something like for Manham Dock Museum and the uh, boat side of things, there's something like 100 volunteers in this organisation. And they're great people. And a lot of them are older, like me, but, you know, it's, we've got time, that's the point, because of our retirement. We've got time to spend here, and it's a very good thing to do, I think. Manham and Mildura are considered centres of river maritime history in Australia. The paddle steamers are draw cards to bring people into the rural towns. The Manham Dock Museum celebrates the vessels and has created an interactive space for people to learn about paddle steamers like the Marion and the Mayflower. Executive Officer Deb Alexander says it's part of a wider strategy to encourage tourism dollars to be spent in town which is even more crucial now than ever. The secret, I think, of now is to actually get out and see what we have, become ambassadors of our fantastic state and also our Murray River because it's got so much to offer. You just have to sit on the riverbank, look at the river, and you're taken to another place. It's an ever-changing landscape. And when you've got museums of this nature to complement the actual um, destination that you're coming to, but also on top of that, you actually interact with the volunteers and the people that love it so much, from the lady in the visitor information centre out the front to the guy out the back doing a little bit of painting by himself or the captain of the Mayflower. That's what tourism is about. While the boats may encourage tourism, it's passengers turning up for a ride that's kept wheels turning on these historic vessels. These particular species of whale, southern right whale, their numbers are low 
but they are building gradually. But uh, they're really rare whale, and why the beauty of this species of whale is they do come in close to shore. They can handle very shallow waters with their calves, so that gives people a chance to actually see the whale where most other species of whales are on the water offshore you know, a kilometre, two, three, five, ten kilometres plus. Peter Reid is no casual whale watcher. The resident of Warrnambool on Victoria's rugged southwest coast has been keeping a serious watch on the southern right whales that visit this shoreline between autumn and spring for 19 years. He is so dedicated he's converted an old water tank into a whale watching shelter and he divides his time between it and the city's public viewing platform at Logan's Beach. It's an activity that requires a lot of patience. A whole day of watching may result in just a glimpse of a breaching whale. That's at the early season. So when the whales first arrive early season, you do just get glimpses and you wonder who that is or when they're they passing and they're not calving. But when the whales come in and they're regular whales, we've got at least 10 whales that's been calving here for a lot of years. So when they do calve, they become resident whales. They reside here. Some whales I've had here for just over 100 days, and which is fantastic. But other whales will come and stay for two, three weeks, and then they just move off with their calves, and we don't, you know, they end up in Port Ferry, or they'll end up down the coast, or, you know, sometimes we just don't ever see them again. They can be in Tasmania, who knows? Hello, I'm Sian Johnson. I'm here with Peter at Logan's Beach. This spot is known as a whale nursery because it's the only place in Victoria where female whales return to give birth and nurse their calves. Peter is one of several citizen scientists in this region whose observations of visiting whales has been crucial to understanding how the population of these whales, once decimated by commercial whaling, is now faring. A lot of our whales that come to Warrnambool Logan's Beach become resident whales and they are here and that's a beautiful thing because I get to track them all day and I run a log book and I see them and I can predict nearly sometimes when they're going to breach. Uh, meanwhile, while I'm doing my little bit of research, I've got lots of people coming around me and asking me, oh, where's the whales? What are they? Who are they? So I get to talk to lots of people and something about whales or the w mammals that make people very friendly and likeable and happy. And that's a funny thing I've always found. Yeah, you know, they do that to me, so why not another homo sapien for sure? It's a lot of effort and a lot of energy. What drives you to do it? Yeah, it's a question I get sometimes, but uh, I don't know. I just love these whales, and it's free, and it's out here in the wilds on the you know the great southern ocean. And I'm I've been out on this deck where it's pure white with hail, and I'm the only one here. And the whales are just sitting out there breaching, and I'm getting 10, 15 massive breaches and double breaches, and you know, and every time I know you can't get sick of that stuff. Observations made by Peter and fellow volunteer citizen scientists are feeding into the work of Mandy Watson of Victoria's Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. When she first arrived in Warrnambool in 1995, she set up a photo identification catalogue for the southern right whale population that frequents southeastern Australia's coastline. So historically the photo ID work has been done by us, um, by the department, and from aircraft because the identification images that we need are traditionally collected from what we call the dorsal view, so looking down on top of the whale's head. 
And so that data has historically been collected just using aircraft. But that funding for that work is getting harder and harder to find. And what we have found is that there's a lot of photographers out and about these days, particularly there's a really dedicated group of them in Western Victoria who are out taking photos of whales and um, able to use a lot of those images. If you get enough images from the right angles, you can still code the callosity patterns and use, use those images for the research. So in recent years, we've had a substantial increase in the amount of that we've received because these citizen scientists have been sharing their images. I've been working with them individually and also in groups um, and also through social media. We've run a couple of training workshops in Victoria on how to identify southern right whales and how to take southern right whale identifying images and also how they can themselves have a go at doing the photo identification matching. In the last three years of data collection from the citizen scientists, we've had around 40 IDs contributed per year from these citizen scientists, which is a pretty, a pretty significant increase on what we would be able to collect just by doing, say, monthly flights and capturing whatever's in the area because what they're doing is they're out there every day. Whether it's the same person every day or whether it's just a couple from within that group, they've pretty much got coverage of the whole season between the group of them. In, in a normal year, we've got eyes out there pretty much every day. We're just lucky that we have uh, a number of people that actually have the time and the, the equipment and the passion in this part of the world. Mandy Watson from Victoria's Department of Environment ending that report from C. Ann Johnson. And before that, Laura Collins took us to the Murray River where paddle steamers are back in action after an extended break. You're listening to A Country Breakfast on RN. Edwina Farley with you. Still to come, how putting pen to paper is helping forgotten Australians process the past and we're plunging into icy water for health and happiness. I think there's something about swimming in such a beautiful place like the Res, which is really grounding because it's, it's grounding you in a place, in a really beautiful location, which is where we live here in central Victoria. But it's also that experience of sharing it with a friend and, sh- and sharing the kind of extremities of that experience of the cold water and the joy of sharing that um, in your friendship uh, just keeps you going throughout your day in a way that I don't think I've ever experienced before. cold in central Victoria during winter, but imagine swimming in the outdoors. That's what friends Jessie Boylan and Frog Peck from Chewton do. While most of us are sound asleep, they head to the Expedition Pass Reservoir in Chewton, otherwise known as the Res, and plunge themselves into the cold water for their regular swims. But it's not only for exercise, cold water can also reduce stress. I'm Larissa Romanski and I've met the pair who were relaxing after their swim. Frog is a swimming teacher and didn't want to miss out just because the swimming centres were shut. Jesse and I started going for swims in October, um, weekly, which has been amazing. And by the time we got to COVID, it was like we knew it was coming, we were prepared. It's been great, it's been great. It's actually hard to imagine going back into a pool at this point. Just the, the sheer kind of beauty of the location of the res, the surroundings, the, you know, we go there at, at 6.37 in the morning, uh, the birds are just waking up, the fog is often just settling in on the res. It's this kind of 
otherworldly place that I think it can't be matched by an indoor pool. The cold water is is probably the number one factor of why I've continued to swim there um, in the colder months. It sends my whole body into a prickle is the best word to describe it and I think that every part of my body I can feel it. I can feel what the cold water is doing to it even with the full neoprene, even with the wetsuit and the booties and the gloves. I think that every part of me is um, activated when I'm in the cold water. There's a level of stress that my body goes through when it first enters the water and my body then has to deal with that stress in order to continue on with the swimming. And I think by dealing with the stress, after that the idea of the cold water sort of drifts away and I'm just concentrating on the swimming, I'm concentrating on my breath, I'm concentrating on my stroke, I'm wondering where Jessie might be, especially if it's foggy. The experience of meeting someone there and going with a friend is is possibly the only reason why I do go there. I don't think I would be able to do it on my own. I think it's something about that shared experience in such a beautiful location that, that you know, drives the impetus and drives the force to keep going. Frog and Jessie wear full body wetsuits and as they swim, the fog lifts off this large stretch of open water surrounded by trees. Research has shown cold water swimming has both biological and psychosocial benefits. It stimulates the vagus nerve, increases circulation, which distributes nutrients and removes toxins. Frog Peck agrees it's doing him good. We share the getting ready, we share the cold water experience, and we also share the conversation that comes up afterwards of how we felt about it, and maybe even gives us a chance to talk about things that are happening in our life that we might not have normally talked about if we weren't going through this three times a week together. Like many people, I'm dealing with anxiety and, and bouts of depression in my life. Swimming has been a really great way to ground me during those times, to have something to look forward to, and also as a way to um, deal with my thoughts, handle some of the stresses that my body is taking on, process that in the water, or just simply do something completely different to how the rest of the day has been going. When I wasn't swimming, when I was commuting to Melbourne in a um, completely different job and um, wasn't as flexible as I think I, my life is now, I had a bit of a breakdown and returning to swimming both in the industry and returning um, to swim with Jessie and the res has really helped um, me work through my mental health. It's an ongoing process though and it kind of needs attention. Um, every week. About three and a half years ago I had a um, very dramatic breakup and uh, kind of sent me sent me into a place that I hadn't experienced before in terms of depression and anxiety and fear and worry, loss and and six months after that I had a basketball injury which turned into a very a very serious kind of back problem and it's since turned into chronic pain and so added all of these layers added together has has often meant that I haven't been in a great place in the past few years to find my strength through swimming has been really important for me to 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 regain my sense of connection with my own body and kind of push through the really difficult times and I think 
adding a layer of cold water and being outside to that has really meant that actually in all seriousness the last three or four months I haven't been experiencing depression in the same way as I have in the past three years and of course there are a number of factors that might be adding to that whereas like being in lockdown, not traveling so much, maybe not having as many stresses in my life. But I think that the cold water itself, because I notice when I haven't been in there for about a week that, you know, things start to change. And so I have to jump back in and it's kind of like an almost immediate experience and almost immediate effect. This room is filled with a dozen or so participants in a creative writing workshop that is using storytelling to help heal from trauma. They are known as the Forgotten Australians, the more than half a million children who suffered abuse and neglect while living in out-of-home care in the last century. So this is Melody's photo, yes. Okay, go Mel. My name's this storytelling My project name runs Bianca. throughout Queensland. Hi, I'm Inga Stunsner. I'm here in Rockhampton and I'm speaking with participant Tanya Smith. My mother was unfit and um, the courts actually um, took us from her and put us in there. I was eight months old and I was taken when, um, when it shut down and they put us back in, there was me and my brother, um, and then they put us back with our real parents, um, <clears throat> which we never should have because they were very cruel, um, horrible, horrible people. Our life after that was in and out of homes because they thought we were uncontrollable. Um, my brother has since committed suicide, you know, went to drugs and things like that. So um, I sort of had nobody, you know, and no family, you know, all that. And it was hard, you didn't want your children to know what you've been through. So since Lotus Open, it's been fantastic. Like, you know, having a, the family that you just never had. Yeah, it's hard to be normal in society after all the trauma. Tanya has already written her story and presented it to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse last year. Like, it was easy to write, but then reading it out later on, it's just like, oh, wow. Um, I sort of had a bit of a panic attack and sort of hit home a bit. It's something that I'll probably put away and, like, my kids or my family can read it later on to know a bit about me, which I haven't discussed with my children in the past. I think it is helping, yes. And Lotus Place, since I've come here, it's been a godsend with all that. And being around people like ourselves and um, understanding each other. And I actually met somebody that was in the alcohol with me as a child that was a couple of years older, so we've sort of formed a bond. But yeah, it just feels like family. Today, the storytelling and writing is different. I help in a bakery shop in Holland. I feed the homeless. I have been Edwina Shaw is a published author and she's used creative writing as a means of dealing with her own childhood trauma. 
it's fun just to explore your creativity. So a lot of people too have stories going around and around in their heads that they have to get out on the page. So a lot of them have done that now for the redress um, process. So, but what I know from working with these people and also from my own experiences, that by repeating those stories over and over, it only embeds them and you don't want to do that. You want them out, but you don't want to keep them and enhance them and, and yeah, make them concrete. So what we're doing in these ones is focusing on, you know, finding moments of joy even within the darkness, like in Nicole, which was a particularly disgusting orphanage not far from Rockhampton, um, there was a beautiful creek and the kids would sometimes be allowed to go out and play in the creek. So there were some happy moments, so little bits like that or... The power too of so the first exercise you saw us do today was the character so it's about getting into somebody else's head the fun of using your imagination and then you can always give your trauma to somebody else and it separates it from you it's just about creating a group as well a safe place to share your stories so if people do need to tell their sad stories they do come out even if we're focusing on the positive uh, so we're doing another exercise now where it's just affirmations we make a little affirmation book and so you have something that you can put in your pocket and pull out and read a positive statement to help stop you going to that very dark place because these are people who have suffered awful trauma and it impacts your whole life, especially when it's from very early in your childhood. These courses are run by support service Lotus Place. Coordinator Kate Maguire. The Healing Power of Story has come about because of the recent taking up of redress from the Queensland Government and the forming of the Truth, Healing and Reconciliation Task Force a few years ago. And last year they decided to create a fund to help people that have been through redress to help them reconcile and support them in the healing journey. Me happy because I know that I have a home. Yay! Really good job. That was from thinking you couldn't make anything up, but you did. Yes. What do you want? More bling? Stars, animals. I want an animal. That was a participant in a storytelling workshop for survivors of childhood trauma, ending that report from Inga Stunzner. And before that, Larissa Romensky brought us the story of those brave swimmers taking to the chilly water of their local reservoir in central Victoria. Braver than me, I've got to tell you. Well, would you believe that nearly 50% of used tyres in Australia go to landfill? It's one of the biggest issues to tackle in our war on waste, and in a moment we'll meet one innovator who's found a great alternative. Open your ears to music. I know you've heard this one before. Science and technology. We are in WA, home to up to a third of the world's carnivorous plant species. Culture and society. When I heard head one... I cried and I thought, oh my God, Dad, you did know. Kids and family. It's magic, it's fast, and hopefully it's crocodile-proof. Open your ears to the world with the ABC Listen app. Download it for free today. 
Did you know cider makers in Australia only have to declare where the beverage was made on the label and not where the fruit juice is from? Country of origin labelling is a sore point for the industry, but producers want to rectify it by proving that trace minerals can distinguish ciders with Australian apple juice from those using imported concentrate. Here's Cider Australia's Vice President, Warwick Billings. Wine has massive legislation so that what's on the label has to be where it's from. But most other drinks don't really have that level of clarity, transparency, truth even uh, on the label. And so you can sort of masquerade as a cider from somewhere but not really be a cider from somewhere. Cider Australia developed in conjunction with some government funding a trust mark and the trust mark says if we've got the trust mark on the bottle that it uses 100% Australian apples. So we're very pleased to make that step. This is an extension of that but you've got the the science to, to back it up. Yeah, so what this grant is about is, um, so having said that this is 100% Australian, you need to be a member of Cider Australia to use this trust mark. Um, but then the next question is, well, how do we prove it? You know, like it's all very well saying something, but you do need to be able to prove it in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can do that on paper. You can say, look, here's my apples, here's, here's how I made it, and then here's my cider. But that is open to stretching, which is probably the politest way to put it. And, and that applies to a lot of things. Like if you're following someone's paper records, they're only as good as the paper records that were ever kept. So the next step is cutting edge stuff in apples. But basically, there's some some pretty you know smart science that comes from you know science as science evolves, science has moved along, and and so now people can analyse lots of different aspects of uh, a substance. Um, it's getting more like the stuff you see on CSI on telly. <laughs> <laughs> so so they can analyse loads of stuff, and and what it turns out is that if something came something grew somewhere, basically it carries into the substance of the thing a footprint or a, a fingerprint, a, a traceability of the soil and the environment that it grew in. So I say not just the soil because in irrigation can impact it as well. But at the end of the day, it, things that come from the land come with a fairly reliable fingerprint, it would seem. And so this grant that we've just got, which is awesome, is a grant to put that to the test and see if it really will work in cider. How would you do that in a laboratory in a physical sense? We'll start with a collection of apples, then we'll get a collection of juice from those apples, and then we'll get a collection of ciders from those juices from those apples. We will test these, the fingerprint remains solid all the way through those processes. And then that will enable us in the future to go out and buy a cider from somewhere and be able to apply the same tests and be able to say with our hands on our hearts and absolute certainty that it is genuinely Australian. Is it a problem in the industry, some cider businesses passing off ciders that aren't Australian? I don't think it's particularly a problem. It's just about transparency. So we're, we're going out there and saying this cider is 100% Australian and the transparency is that we need to be able to prove that. Um, there are other people, you know, there, there are some grey areas in the food law of Australia, let's put it that way, perhaps. Um, like the the little logo that you see on the side of nearly all produce these days with the little triangle and the kangaroo and then a little sort of slider ruler underneath. Do you remember that one? Have you seen that one? Yes, yes, the, the various yeah, okay, incarnations. So, 
Yeah, so that should be on nearly everything, but it doesn't cover liquor, so it doesn't cover alcoholic beverages, basically. So if you've got apple juice, you have to have that little kangaroo and ruler on it, but if you've got cider, you don't. And so there's that sort of grey area that makes the Australian producers a bit unhappy because we kind of think <laughs> think that people should know that it's Australian. If it's Australian, we should be proud of Australia. And so at the moment, Australia doesn't export massive amounts of cider but but we're kind of looking at that there's lots of interest there's export markets out there and it becomes more and more important as we approach the export thing because you know if you're selling something that's proudly australian and people are buying it because it's from australia and, and they respect our reputation and our you know capabilities and our clean environment etc etc you need to be able to make sure that you're right Warwick Billings there speaking with Larissa Smith. Well, every year, Australia generates the equivalent of 56 million used car tyres and 27 million of them aren't being recycled. As other nations move to stop us exporting our waste, the pressure's on to find alternatives to landfill. And a Queensland man is doing just that by making non-slip mats of woven tyres for cattle in high traffic areas. Jennifer Nichols visited Owen Henry at Yandina Creek in Queensland, where a grant from Tyre Stewardship Australia is making his new venture much quicker and safer. There's a reason there's a danger sticker on the first machine Owen Henry bought to cut through rubber and wire in discarded four-wheel drive tyres. He had to rotate them through roller and blade by hand. Wow, you wouldn't want to get your hand mixed up with that. <laughs> That's why I need gloves. Luckily, on the back of his ute, there's now a much safer alternative. The tyre sits on that, that lifts up, goes into the blade, the blade pulls forward, spins around, cuts around the tyre. Hands are kept right away from the blade. When it's finished, you let go, it releases, the tyre drops down, swap it around and repeat the process again. How excited were you the first time you used it after hand cutting tyres? I was very excited. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait to stop the, uh, yeah, the hard work and, um, yeah, and the dangerous work too and smoky. Yeah, it just makes so, so life so much easier. And, yeah, without that machinery, you're stuffed. I was doing it by hand, a grinder, a <laughs> Stanley knife. It's hard yakker. A grant from Tire Stewardship Australia made the purchase possible, helping Owen Henry speed up his dream of making money from transforming mountains of used tyres destined for landfill into non-slip mats for livestock. Basically what we're doing, taking the sidewalls off, you're left with this product here, then you cut it in half, and you're left with a flat surface like that. Then you interweave them together like a basket, and uh, they're used for to stop cattle slipping over. So I use stainless steel fasteners um, and washers, makes them pretty much indestructible. Um, out the front of a crush, they're brilliant. Loading ramps, anywhere where they're encountering slip surfaces. So. Tell me, Owen Henry, how this all started. It all started a few years ago. I was working for a company who were bringing these mats in from America. I looked down and I saw old woven tyre mats and I thought, why are we bringing someone else's problems into Australia? 
And um, then I started speaking to a couple of producers and they said they're brilliant. They just stop the cattle slipping and fatalities. And I thought, well, I'll have a crack at it. So I applied to uh, Thai Stewardship Australia, got a bit of funding from them and um, here we are. Lena Goodman is the CEO of Tire Stewardship Australia, a not-for-profit organisation funded by a levy that's voluntarily paid by eight major tyre importers. Each year in Australia, 56 million tyres uh, end up in waste. Unfortunately, only half of them are either upcycled, reprocessed or recycled into new products. The rest are either illegally dumped, stockpiled or sent overseas for poor recovery process. It works out to be about two tyres per person each year. Australia's environment ministers have agreed to ban the export of all whole waste tyres by December 2021 and with the equivalent of 27 million car tyres wasted every year, Lena Goodman says the pressure's on to find alternative uses in horse racing tracks, car parks, sports grounds, playgrounds and turning rubber into roads. When used tyres go into roads, they last longer, they are stronger, they create better noise barrier, uh, they have the ability to uh, ensure there's less cracking, so safer on the roads. Each square metre of Owen Henry's tourist mats uses 19 tyres. <laughs> He's been trialling them under feed bins in cattle yards and says his mats are more than competitive with the American version already in use in Australian feedlots. Well, we're $20 a metre cheaper and you don't have to pay for freight and deal with the freight issues. So it's a lot better for people in Australia. With the 1800 by 1800 how much would one of those cost? Uh, you're looking at about, say, 350 Yeah, D depending on what you do. I, I like to have... Um, Anchor points just keeps them out in place because they are while well, they are heavy, they're 30 kilos a square metre. They do move, um, so you're better off just tying them in place if possible. But the mats aren't the only business opportunity Owen Henry's found for recycled tyres. He's supplying sidewalls to silage contractors. They use them to weigh down their tarps and aid the fermentation process. And yeah, they need thousands of them. So you found yourself to be quite busy. <laughs> Flat, I can't keep up, which is great. <laughs> and more demand all the time, is it enough to make a living out of now? Um, tire mats, not so much, but I think, yeah, definitely with the um, sidewalls, for sure. Owen Henry with a small business that could make a big difference in the war on tyre waste. The small town of Malakuta in Victoria's southeast made international headlines during last summer's bushfire crisis. Images of glowing red skies and thousands of people sheltering on the jetty and beach were beamed around the world. More than 100 homes burnt to the ground and the community was devastated. Now the town is leading the way in bushfire recovery, opting to do it all themselves rather than rely on government. Jess Davis paid them a visit. Good dogs. Good dogs. What are we going to do now? Lynn Howard's home at Gypsy Point, just outside Malakuta, came under threat multiple times during the black summer bushfires. I don't think anyone can kind of explain what it's like until you've been through it. The CFA volunteer was in the radio control room. Even as the CFA shed caught a light, she kept working. 
the dawn came and the fire front was quite close and then it goes completely dark with this awful red hue. That fire fight went on then for probably about three days. Bushfires destroyed more than 100 homes here, as well as large swathes of bushland, farms and infrastructure. The fires continued to burn for weeks, but Lynn Harwood had already turned her mind towards recovery. Mallacoota is a, a really strong community with very intelligent people with really good ideas, which are not always compatible. So there have been times in the past where the community has been split and wanted to go in different directions. Um, so I thought it was really critical that we set up a situation to help Mallacoota recover. She's one of six locals who started what's called the Thinking Group, with an idea the town would run its own bushfire recovery, bypassing local government, in the hope it could rebuild and recover faster. Without the boat, I don't know how I would have saved this here. But this whole bank stayed alight for five weeks. Lynn's partner is Indigenous writer and farmer Bruce Pascoe. When I first came to Mallacoota, we had no policeman. We had one school teacher, me, and the town was like a, a self-governing body. Mallacoota was its own, own self, and uh, it was wild. You know, the, the early days of abalone, mad as hell, but, but lovely in its own right. And things have changed now. There's a different population in here, but, you know, that same spirit was there in the fires. His property lies on the river upstream from Mallacoota, and it's here Bruce has been rediscovering Indigenous agriculture. The fires wiped out a crop of kangaroo grass that he'd been nurturing for two years and was ready to harvest. So it was a huge psychological loss for us to lose that entire crop. But then we got this other brilliant grass came through. So it was like, you know, the land was telling us it's OK, it's OK, you know. This is what Australia's like. You have fire, you have recovery, and um, that's what we got. The local community is undergoing a similar transformation, partly thanks to Bruce's cousin Steve Pascoe, who lost his house at Strathewan in the Black Saturday bushfires. Of the 100 or so properties, houses in Strathewan, 80% uh, of them were burnt down and 29 people tragically lost their lives. Together with three other Strathewan locals, he pioneered a community-led approach to bushfire recovery. The four of us have worked in government and have worked extensively in communities. And we all, we, we all uh, knew that if we waited for government to do it for us, then it would take too long, it'd probably be the wrong thing, and it wouldn't do us any good. They formed an incorporated association, formally elected by the community. It was a leading concept uh, and we made it up on the run just by, by learning as we went. Malakuta was keen to adopt a similar model and Steve Pascoe was flown in to begin the process while the fires were still burning. Malakuta is a, an isolated town. Um, because of its isolation, it um, was actually a, probably a really good place for a community-led process to, to happen. Malakuta lies at the edge of the East Gippsland Shire. It's nearly three hours from Bansdale, where the council sits. 
Lynn Harwood says that's been a problem for the isolated community. Mallacoota has had a long and often difficult relationship with the Shire. Rightly or wrongly, we have felt that we're not always at the forefront of the Shire's decision-making processes. More than half of the town's 1,000 residents showed up to the first community meeting in February. Would all of those people who would like an incorporated association be set up? They voted overwhelmingly to create an incorporated community association which now has nearly 800 members. The committee will apply for available recovery grants and determine how it's distributed to rebuild community infrastructure. This includes support and funding for those who lost their homes. Let's do it. Let's do it. This is a block. Wow. Twelve people were elected to the committee in May, including 22-year-old Bryce Watts-Parker, whose family home was destroyed. It's really difficult watching everything that you know and love being vaporised right before your eyes. Being involved in the recovery effort has helped Bryce Watts-Parker to feel useful. You can have people um, in Melbourne, all over Australia, telling you how it's done, but fundamentally it's the people in the community and the people on the ground that um, guide how that recovery happens. But Steve Pascoe says much of the knowledge gained about bushfire recovery since Black Saturday has already been lost. There's been a, a loss of disaster recovery training uh, for local government or for anyone really. And so we, we pretty much arrive at the, this year's summer with very little in place at state government level and for local governments it's been a, a great challenge. Disaster recovery is a complex process and he says governments aren't equipped for it. Governments find it quite difficult to um, resource and develop disaster recovery. It's um, of course much less photogenic, uh, it's much longer, it takes years, it's all about people. Uh, so if the community is in charge of their own recovery, they can determine timelines, they can normalise the experience through sharing stories, understanding how things work, they can advocate for their own needs, they can find resources themselves. But As this isolated town begins the long rebuild, Lynn Harwood believes the community will come out better on the other side. We will get through this you know, that Malakuta is strong and that the people here are strong and that together we will um, move on. Lynn Harwood ending that story from Jess Davis. And if you missed Landline last weekend, you too can see how Malakuta is travelling. Just look for that program on iView. That's the show for this week. I'm Edwina Farley. Stay with us, won't you, for more great stories right here on RN.
You're with a country breakfast. Knowing the origin of wine can be an important factor for consumers. It's something the cider industry thinks should matter for them also. Cider Australia developed with some government funding a trust mark and the trust mark says if we've got the trust mark on the bottle that it uses 100% Australian apples. I'm Edwina Farley. Join me after the news to find out more about the cider fingerprint.